talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Welcome back, everyone. It's been quite a busy month for the podcast team. Julie, Kelly, you both just got back from the Foundation's U.S. Annual Conference. Is that right? Yes, it is. It was a great event. We were both lucky to sit in on some really interesting presentations and conduct some very valuable focus groups with our members. And as you can hear, the trip wouldn't have been complete without each of us picking up a fall cold. So very sorry in advance for our sniffles. Julie, there's also a rumor going around that you were spotted doing a televised interview with CNBC. I did. I did. I made a little cameo on CNBC's show On the Money and talked to host Rebecca Quick about open enrollment and how employees can make the best decisions when choosing a health care plan. It was kind of fun. You did great. It's certainly never a dull moment around here, and the same can always be said for the benefits industry. It was another jam-packed month. Justin, what can you tell us in your two-minute update today? I do have a few things to report. Just a reminder that we are recording this on Wednesday, November 15th at 11 a.m. Central Time. Starting with the opioid crisis, on November 1st, President Trump's bipartisan commission on the opioid crisis made 56 recommendations to combat the deadly epidemic, ranging from creating more drug courts to vastly expanding access to medications that treat addiction. The commissioners did not specify how much money should be spent to carry out their suggestions, but they pressed Congress to, quote, appropriate sufficient funds in response to President Trump's declaration of a public health emergency. And as a reminder, on November 9th, the foundation co-hosted a half-day conference with MRA, the Management Association, called The Opioid Epidemic, Is Your Workplace Prepared? It was a great event with presentations covering drug testing, EAPs, workers' compensation, and legal compliance. The on-demand recordings are still available to view at ifebp.org opioid. Staying in the executive branch, President Trump nominated a new Health and Human Services Secretary. Alex Azar previously worked in George W. Bush's administration as HHS General Counsel and Deputy Secretary. Since then, he served as President of U.S. Operations for pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly. If confirmed by the Senate, Azar would succeed Tom Price. Moving on to government-sponsored retirement savings programs, starting with Massachusetts, on October 23rd, a committee of the Massachusetts legislature held a information gathering hearing during which they considered a bill that would set up a government-sponsored multiple employer plan for private employers in the state. The committee will decide if the bill deserves more consideration with a more formal hearing, including invited witnesses and testimony. In Seattle, on October 10th, legislation for a plan was sent by Mayor Tim Burgess to the City Council as part of the 2018 city budget. This plan is designed for employees within city limits whose employer does not offer a plan. 
It includes auto enrollments with a default deferral rate and investments, but employees can change or opt out. And in Oregon, looking at the Oregon Saves program, which is currently in a phased implementation process based on employer size. On October 12th, the ERISA Industry Committee filed a complaint in the Federal Oregon District Court against the Oregon Retirement Savings Board. They are requesting an injunction on a requirement that employers with an existing retirement plan must request an exemption from Oregon Saves, filing paperwork every three years. They claim that this process violates ERISA. These state and city level actions serve as a reminder for multi-state employers to pay attention to proposed saving plans at various jurisdictional levels. And finally, for a quick MEPRA update, there is currently one application in review, the Western States Office and Professional Employees Pension Fund in Portland, Oregon. There was one reduction approval by the Treasury, the International Association of Machinists Motor City Pension Fund from Troy, Michigan. The Treasury approved the reduction on November 6th and is now waiting for a participant vote. If approved, reductions would begin on January 1st, 2018. And we have two applications withdrawn. The Alaska Ironworkers Pension Plan from Anchorage, Alaska withdrew their application on October 19th and said that they would reapply before the end of the year. And the Southwest Ohio Regional Council of Carpenters Pension Plan from Austintown, Ohio that withdrew on October 12th. Thanks, Justin. That went a little over two minutes, but it was all good and important information. After last month's episode, Congress got pretty busy with tax reform, which we'll cover in just a few minutes. But as always, I do have a few health care updates. In last month's episode, I mentioned the Trump administration was finalizing an executive order instructing the Departments of Health and Human Services, Labor, and Treasury to write regulations related to health insurance. That executive order was completed and released in mid-October. First of all, the order stated that employers should be allowed to buy health insurance policies across state lines. The order promotes doing this by expanding access to association health plans. Kelly, I think we should have a foundation from the foundation about association health plans. These plans allow small employers to band together to gain some of the purchasing power and cost advantages of big employers. By banding together, they can spread risk and administrative costs across a larger pool of insurable individuals. Association health plans typically include employers from the same industry or trade group. They've existed for many years, but their use became more restricted when they became subject to ACA requirements. The executive order suggests that the Department of Labor should look for ways to make it easier for small employers to form these groups and ease the restrictions under ACA and ERISA. Easing the ACA restrictions may result in less expensive but less comprehensive coverage for participants. We'll have to wait and see what the Labor Department proposes. The executive order says the DOL must consider proposing new regulations or guidance on association health plans within 60 days, which appears to give this issue some urgency. It could be many months before new rules are finalized and implemented, however. Kelly, weren't there a few other directives in that executive order? Yes, you're right, Justin. Within 120 days of the order, the agencies are supposed to consider issuing new rules or revising guidance to improve the usefulness of health reimbursement arrangements, or HRAs, for employees. 
HRAs are tax-advantaged individual accounts set up and funded by employers, not employee contributions. Currently, they are used to reimburse workers for medical expenses such as co-payments and deductibles, but not insurance premiums. At present, only certain small employers can offer HRAs to reimburse premiums. The executive order suggests expanding this privilege to all employers and even permitting these accounts to be used in conjunction with non-group health insurance coverage. The last item covered in the executive order focuses on short-term, limited-duration health insurance policies. These are insurance policies for individuals that fill in health coverage gaps for just a few months. Coverage under these plans falls outside the restrictions of ACA. Often they cover expenses in the event of medical catastrophes and do not cover pre-existing conditions. Before ACA, these policies were limited to a 12-month duration. Since ACA was enacted, these plans were limited to a three-month duration with no renewals. The executive order suggests extending the duration and allowing renewals. All right, it sounds like there won't be any dull moments in the months ahead if more health care regulations are in our future. Speaking of unpredictable health care news items, whatever happened to those cost-sharing subsidies? It seemed like the future of the health insurance exchanges hung in the balance because those subsidies might be stopped. Yes, there's news on that front, too. Also in mid-October, the Trump administration decided to stop paying those subsidies indefinitely. Several state attorneys general tried to get an injunction to compel the Trump administration to continue making the payments, but that request was denied. So, Kelly, what will the fallout be from this lack of subsidies? There will undoubtedly be a premium increase for insurance plans offered on the exchanges. Some of the lowest income individuals who get insurance through the exchanges will receive higher premium tax credits because of the higher premiums charged. Those who earn too much to qualify for premium tax credits but are healthy may opt for skimpier but cheaper non-ACA coverage. The hardest hit group will probably be older middle class individuals who have serious illnesses or chronic conditions and therefore need robust health insurance but earn too much to qualify for premium tax credits. There is a slight chance that the cost sharing subsidies could be restored if a bipartisan bill sponsored by Senators Alexander and Murray were to be enacted. Their bill, known as the Bipartisan Healthcare Stabilization Act of 2017, would reinstate cost-sharing subsidies through 2019 and require some funding for health insurance exchange outreach and enrollment activities. The bill would also ease the state innovation waiver process under ACA Section 1332 and allow anyone in the non-group market to purchase a high-deductible catastrophic plan. People under age 30 and those who qualify for a hardship exemption are already allowed to buy this type of catastrophic plan. I've been following that bill too, Julie. The Congressional Budget Office estimated that it would reduce the deficit by $3.8 billion over the 2018 to 2027 time period, and there would be little effect on the number of people covered. I've also read that the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, and President Trump do not approve of the bill, so it may not gain much traction. 
Kelly, wasn't there another bill introduced that included a provision to save these cost-sharing subsidies? Yes, Justin, you're correct. In late October, Senator Orrin Hatch and Congressman Kevin Brady, two top GOP lawmakers, unveiled a new proposal to shore up ACA in an effort to offer an alternative to the Alexander Murray bill and go in a more conservative direction. The Hatch-Brady bill would roll back the employer and individual coverage mandates, fund cost-sharing subsidies for two years with as-yet unspecified pro-life protections, and increase the contribution limit for health savings accounts. The proposal gained the backing of at least 12 Republicans and 12 Democrats in the Senate, but the Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said it may not be voted on because he doubts the President would sign it into law. Any other momentous health care moments in the past month, Kelly? Yes, of course there were. And this next news item applies directly to employers. As we turned the calendar page to November, we noticed that the IRS had updated its ACA FAQ web pages and provided more information about their enforcement of the employer mandate. As we've said all along, even though there have been many attempts to repeal and change the law, most of ACA is still in place and employers and plan sponsors should play by its rules. So the latest news is that in late 2017, which basically means any day now, the IRS will start sending out penalty assessment notices, also known as 226J letters, to employers who they believe did not fully comply with the employer mandate in 2015. An employer will have 30 days to respond to the notice. The employer will need to either pay the penalty or start the appeal process. So in other words, do not pitch any correspondence you receive from the IRS. Even if you think you're compliant, you may receive a 226J letter that you'll need to respond to. Exactly right, Julie. Also, the IRS announced in mid-October that it will not accept electronically filed tax returns for the upcoming 2018 filing season, where an individual taxpayer does not address the health coverage requirements under ACA and indicate whether they have coverage. In the most recent 2017 tax season, the IRS did accept tax returns without that health coverage information. While we're on the topic of ACA reporting related to the individual mandates, I read that the Trump administration is considering the release of an executive order that would effectively impede the individual mandate. Is that expected soon? It could be, Justin. Apparently, this executive order would instruct the HHS to broaden the hardship exemptions, which under ACA are left up to the discretion of the administration. These exemptions would allow individuals to get out of paying the fine. President Trump says he will hold off on signing the order to see if a repeal of the individual mandate is included in the new tax reform bill. More on that later. Thank you, Kelly. It certainly feels like the health care updates just keep on coming and never take a day off. The International Foundation is always updating its website to reflect the latest changes. Visit the Future of ACA webpage at ifebp.org ACAU to stay up to date between podcast episodes. Speaking of never taking a day off, Julie, I think we have some updates on paid leave laws. Before we dive into tax reform, would you give us a quick update? I sure can, Kelly. For more than a decade, we've been watching action at the state, county, and city level as it applies to paid sick leave. The first city to pass an ordinance was San Francisco in 2006. Now there are 40 jurisdictions that have paid sick leave laws on the books eight states, the District of Columbia, 
and 31 counties and cities. The latest, the number eight state, is Rhode Island. On September 28th, Governor Gina Raimondo signed a bill into law that requires employers with 18 or more employees to allow employees to accrue and use paid sick and safe leave. Leave can be used for themselves or to care for a family member and or a household member. Accrual will begin on July 1st, 2018 at one hour accrued per 35 hours worked, up to 24 hours annually in 2018, so three days, 32 hours in 2019, four days, and 40 hours or five days in subsequent years. Unused leave can be carried over. Julie, you mentioned one of the provisions of the Rhode Island law allows for paid safe leave. Can you explain what safe leave is to our listeners? Safe leave is also called domestic violence leave. The Rhode Island law is allowing employees to take paid leave when they or a family member are the victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, or stalking. The time can be used to seek assistance from the police or lawyers, to obtain a restraining order, to seek medical attention, and or to relocate to a safe place. I just read that New York City has a new law that deals with domestic violence leave. Is that correct? You're right, Justin. On November 6th, Mayor Bill de Blasio signed a law that expands the definition of paid sick leave to include leave for domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, and trafficking. And earlier this year, we conducted a survey among our members asking them to tell us about their paid leave policies. We did ask about domestic violence leave. Justin, can you share what we found out? Yeah, thank you, Kelly. Uh, in May, we surveyed our membership on their offerings for paid holidays, paid vacation, sick leave, bereavement, parental leave, and paid sabbaticals. We also had a section covering other types of leave and asked about domestic violence leave specifically. Paid leave in the workplace 2017 survey results found that 30.4% of responding organizations offer domestic violence leave through a PTO bank, with an additional 9.1% offering the leave through a plan other than a PTO bank. Thanks for sharing that data, Justin. I wanted to let all of you know that Justin and I will be presenting a webcast on December 7th to review the results from the International Foundation's most recent surveys on paid leave and flexible work arrangements. To learn more or to register, visit ifebp.org slash webcasts. Thank you, Julie, for letting our listeners know about that upcoming webcast. And now let's talk about what is on everyone's mind, tax reform. Ooh, talk about never having a dull moment. Since our last episode, both the House and the Senate proposed bills to reform the tax code. Let's take a closer look at the similarities and differences between the bills and the proposed timeline for passage. So the House was the first one out of the gate, releasing their proposed bill on November 2nd. The bill was marked up in committee, and an amended version of the bill was released a week later on November 9th. Also on November 9th, the Senate released their proposed bill. That bill was marked up in their committee, and an amended version was released late on November 14th. The provision that most impacts the benefits community is one that was added to the Senate bill during the amendment process. The bill contains a provision to repeal ACA's individual mandate by reducing the penalty to zero dollars. 
This provision is not in the House bill as it stands right now. According to the Congressional Budget Office, repealing the individual mandate would save $338 billion in federal budget deficits between 2018 and 2027 because fewer people would be receiving government subsidies. CBO also found 4 million more people would be uninsured in 2019 and 13 million more by 2027. Average premiums in the non-group market would rise about 10% during the decade. Healthier people would be less likely to buy insurance and premium increases would keep others from buying too. Another big provision for the benefits community is an employer tax credit for paid family and medical leave. This provision appears in the amended Senate bill. It isn't in the House bill. Under this provision, employers that pay half wages to employees who are out on FMLA leave would get a tax credit of 12.5% of the amount of wages paid. If the employer pays more than half the employee's wages, the credit increases incrementally up to 25%. This tax credit would be in place for a couple of years through 2019 and would be analyzed for its effectiveness by the Government Accountability Office, or GAO. There are three other major benefit-related provisions that were rumored to be in tax reform, but are not in either bill as they stand right now. The first is a cap on the tax advantages for 401k and other DC plan deferrals made by employees. The second is the elimination of the tax exclusion for employer-provided health care coverage. And the third is a change to the rules surrounding health savings accounts, or HSAs. To repeat, none of these provisions are in the bills. So, Julie, what is in the bills, and how do they differ? Okay, here we go. The House bill contains the elimination of several itemized deductions that impact employees. For example, the House bill would repeal the $13,570 adoption assistance income tax exclusion, the employer-provided dependent care assistance benefits exclusion of $5,000 under Section 129, the $5,250 exclusion for tuition reimbursement under Section 127, and the deduction for contributions to Archer Medical Savings Accounts under Section 220. The Senate bill does not include any of these provisions. Also, the House bill would eliminate the individual deductions for out-of-pocket medical expenses that exceed 10% of an individual's adjusted gross income. The Senate bill would not. Both versions of the bill would increase the child tax credit, which currently stands at $1,000. The House bill would increase it to $1,600, while the Senate bill would increase it to $2,000. The House bill would eliminate employers' deductions for employer-provided qualified transportation benefits. The Senate bill repeals the qualified bicycle commuting reimbursement of up to $20 per month. Julie, are there any provisions that would impact retirement plans in either of these bills? Yes, Justin. In the retirement arena, the Senate bill eliminates catch-up contributions for high-wage employees, those who make $500,000 or more and it consolidates contribution limits for 457B plans to match those for 401k and 403b plans. Now these provisions are not in the House bill. 
The House bill makes some technical changes relating to hardship distributions. These provisions are not in the Senate bill. The Senate bill has some technical provisions related to rollovers. The House bill does not. Both bills have provisions relating to plan loans, and under both bills, traditional IRAs can no longer be converted to Roth IRAs and vice versa. In both bills, in-service early distributions would be allowed at age 59 and a half from 457B plans, like they're available for 401k and 403b plans. Now, as a reminder, distributions before that age are subject to a 10% penalty. So starting with the House bill, what's next? For the House bill, the House Ways and Means Committee approved their amended bill on November 9th, 24 to 16, along party lines. The bill, H.R. 1, went to the House Rules Committee late on November 14th. There was some discussion about adding the repeal of the ACA individual mandate to the House bill, but that had not been done as of the timing of this recording. The full House is likely to vote on the bill on November 16th or possibly on the 17th. The House won't be in session Thanksgiving week, so they're trying to get it passed before they leave. It is generally expected that it will pass. And what about the Senate bill? Whether the Senate will pass their bill is another story. As mentioned earlier, the Senate Finance Committee released an amended version of the bill on November 14th. Adding the repeal of the ACA individual mandate adds uncertainty to the bill's passage. As a reminder, the Senate is using budget reconciliation to pass this bill. That's the process that allows a bill to pass with only 51 votes in favor, rather than the 60 votes needed to avoid a filibuster. The three senators who voted against ACA repeal earlier this year are being watched carefully to see what they'll do now. The Senate is supposed to vote on their version of the bill the week after Thanksgiving. Julie, and if the Senate can pass its version of the bill, what's going to happen next? The House could accept the Senate version of the bill as is. But according to reports, some members of the House don't find this option appealing. House Speaker Paul Ryan has reportedly said that both chambers will pass their own versions of the bill, and then a conference committee will be called to hash out the differences. There must be one version of the bill before it can be sent to the president for consideration. The goal is to have tax reform before Christmas. Thanks, Julie. It sounds like there is a lot of work to be done if Congress wants to deliver a bill to the president's desk by Christmas. I'm sure we'll definitely have more to report on that next month. Well, Julie, Kelly, I don't know about you, but I could use a breather from this news whirlwind. But there's never a dull moment in the benefits industry, even at the home office. What do you say we kick back and listen to some member sound bites from a recent conference? We asked some attendees to tell us about their craziest experiences as a benefits professional, and they did not disappoint. So true story. True story. True story. So true story here for you. It was a guy who came in and interviewed, and this was several years ago, five, six years ago, and he had a medical marijuana card, and this was before it was made uh, legal for recreational. And he said, well, here's my marijuana card. That means I can be high at work. Funny story. Something I learned has to do with Quadros, Qualified Domestic Relations Order, on a 401k plan. There is no limit to how many you can have on a plan. And there was actually a participant who had four or five Quadros on his account. I thought, my God, what's he going to retire with? I mean, he's got four other alternate payees that are getting half of a half of a half. So we had um, 
a participant in the defined benefit plan and uh, he passed away suddenly and we had three wives that applied for the benefit sort of all at the same time and of course they were that none of them knew anything about each other and when we had to you know write the letter to say I'm sorry but you're not the spouse you know so that was very obviously tricky at the time but now we can look back on it and sort of chuckle and and of course we ended up giving it to the first wife that had the legal uh, marriage certificate for the earliest date but um, when I'm talking to participants and I say please make sure you're really clear on who your beneficiary is and I do tell that story occasionally of please don't have three wives because it makes our job really hard. A woman called me and I answered the phone and she asked me if uh, her daughter could get health insurance at our company and I said uh, what department does your daughter work in and, and she said oh she doesn't work there I was just calling around to see if there's any employers who would offer her insurance. Well, one of the things I always find interesting, especially managing pensions, is how many people we have to track down to take their money. Like one we tracked down a couple of years ago, so he's finally taking his pension. He didn't choose a lump sum, we don't know why, so he's taking a monthly annuity, and now he's not cashing his checks. So now we have to hound him to cash his checks, because he's got like 10 grand in outstanding checks. Really? If you don't want your 10 grand, just give it to me, I'll take it. <laughs> and there was one individual that had sought services to um, get dentures, and he had um, his one denture that he was able to get for a certain period of time. And unfortunately, he was out surfing one day. And mind you, he was probably 75 years old. He was out surfing one day, and he got hit by a wave and fell in, and he came up after the wave hit him, and he realized he no longer had his dentures. He called us wanting to know what he could do to get his dentures. And unfortunately, we were able to tell him that he was gonna have to pay for them. We used to call him toothless in Pomona. So I once had an employee uh, who called me and said, can I take a leave of absence to go to work at Walmart to see if I like it there better? If I leave the company, can I still get tuition reimbursement? Uh, what is this FICA and what are you doing taking it out of my paycheck? One of the first long-term disability claims I ever worked on was an employee who had some physical injuries and could not sit at a desk or do physical work. So we were doing the application and I got an anonymous call from the employee's boyfriend, significant other, saying that they were taking us for a ride and you need to do this and that. Didn't think much about it. And then he said, well, you know, she's dancing at a strip joint just north of town. Well, I, I just like, I didn't know what to say. So I went and talked to my director about this and said, well, maybe you should go on a field trip. Hey, you weren't kidding, those were hilarious. Maybe CNBC should interview some of those people who are on the front lines. That would make for some fantastic television. And on that note, let's close out this month's episode. If you like what you heard today, please rate us or give us a review on iTunes. It helps other listeners to find us. Thanks for listening and tune in next month as we close out 2017. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.